Oh, Lasso. In this cycle, I thought we would return once again to the meditative cultivation of compassion. Compassion, of course, is this aspiration that we may be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. And this is where the wisdom comes in. There are three different whole dimensions of suffering. The first of these, this will be very brief. I'm not going to go into a whole discourse on dukkha. But the most surface level is called simply blatant suffering. And this is what we experience in body and mind. It's episodic. It tends to come and go. And if we look at the type of suffering that we experience within the human community, then the suffering that we inflict upon each other, whether person to person, community to community, country to country, tends overwhelmingly to come out of a lack of ethics. A lack of ethics, unethical behavior. Ethics, you know, behavior driven by craving, by greed, by hostility, and so forth. So there's one level. So the, we can arouse compassion for those who are suffering blatantly, suffering from explicit suffering. This relates to ethics, and as we aspire, yearn, that we may be free of suffering, of such blatant suffering, then together with that would come the yearning that we can live more ethically together, based upon the principle of ahimsa, of nonviolence. A deeper, and that doesn't really take a whole lot of wisdom to see that. I mean, it's pretty evident, it's pretty clear, it's just hard to do on occasion, insofar as the mind is clouded by mental afflictions. A second and deeper dimension of suffering that calls for somewhat greater insight, it's not obvious, is that suffering is simply called the suffering of change, but it's not suffering intrinsic in change itself, otherwise there would be no escape from it at all, as long as we're living in a world of change. Uh, but rather it's really directly related to attachment among the various mental afflictions, just as anger is clearly related to explicit suffering. So is attachment related a little bit more implicitly to suffering, as long as there's attachment, as long as there's the craving, the clinging attachment, then we are vulnerable. We are vulnerable for suffering. We're just setting ourselves up for suffering. And within the three trainings of ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, samadhi is really the medicine for overcoming the craving. Because if we think, what do we crave? Overall, we beings in the desire realm, we crave things that we can see out in the world. And then multiple, think, multiple people want to crave them, and then we have conflict, and we have anxiety, we have frustration, and so forth. Whereas the practice of samadhi is really a practice of cultivating genuine happiness and switching, like going from coal to solar, switching where we're investing ourselves, where we're really banking our hopes, hoping this will really deliver the happiness and satisfaction I seek. We're shifting the priority away from what out there can bring me happiness to what in here can give, give rise to happiness from within. And samadhi is exactly what the doctor ordered for that. There was a statement when the Buddha was teaching mindfulness of breathing as recorded in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutra. He says the, the Buddhasattva, the Mahasattva, the Mahasattva, abides recognizing the body as the body. So he was speaking of mindfulness of breathing. So having that clarity of recognizing what you're seeing and then dwells without without avarice and without discouragement with respect to the world. It's pretty much a direct translation. 
without avarice, without that looking out to the world, with that kind of that longing, the tentacle of attachment and craving coming out and thinking, that will make me happy. The tentacle is withdrawn because if you've already found happiness, then the tentacle doesn't need to go out. You've already found it. And so what comes is fine, but you, you don't, you're not like a preta. You're not like this hungry ghost looking, since I have nothing inside, who out there, what out there will make me happy? Because you find happiness. You find it from the very nature of your own mind. So quite, it's just logical, it's transparent, it's conceptually clear that as the samadhi arises, and samadhi arises from bliss, and it gives rise to bliss, as you find that from the wellsprings of your own awareness, the craving and attachment for things in the world dries up. And therefore, because the craving, the avarice, the attachment for things in the world rise up, the disappointment dries up. The disappointment, the sadness, the frustration, and then possibly the anger. So there's a whole mid-range there of suffering related to change, related to craving, and the antidote is samadhi. So this really is the oldest lamrim. We have all kinds of lamrims, but the oldest lamrim was shila samadhi prajna. That's the basic lamrim. And then we have the deepest, and that's what I'd like to focus on this, this afternoon in our final session, in this cycle. And that is not only the suffering that is blatant, not only the suffering that comes because we are attached to things in the world, the objects of the senses and so forth, but a deep, even a deeper, a deeper level of suffering, a suffering of basic vulnerability. I won't give you the technical translation, but it's just our fundamental vulnerability to suffering of body and mind. And this stems from grasping. The Tibetan term is Zakchit Nyewar Lembe. Zakchit Nyewar Lembe. Zakchit Nyewar Lemba. Pumpo Zakchit Nyewar Lemba. It is this close, closely, the, at the way of engaging with, relating to our own bodies and minds, which are contaminated in the sense that they are permeated by karma and klesha, created by karma and klesha. But the term is Nyewar Lemba, closely held. We grasp onto, we identify with, we reify. And as soon as we've done that, we make ourselves vulnerable. And of course, as we reify I and mine over here, we reify that which is over there. And that's the fundamental root. And so with respect to the mind, and this relates now again to samadhi and samadhi right on the cusp with wisdom and vipassana, as we loosen up, and how many times I've told you individually and then in a group in terms of settling the mind and generally shamatha, loosen up, release, relax, lighten up, you know, like the same old refrain, you know, it gets like a mantra. But it's overcoming the tendency of this lemba, this closely held, when emotions, desires, thoughts and so forth come up, this cognitive fusion, the cleaving them to, you know, cleaving them to us, identifying with them, and then of course we suffer. And so this settling the mind in its natural state is a direct antidote for that, of not closely holding them, but simply being present with them. And then finding as one is able to loosen and loosen, loosen the grip onto them and identifying with them, then one finds through one's own experience that what comes up in the mind less and less and less has the ability to make us suffer. I mean, I think we all know the minds can drive us crazy you know, the thoughts, the images, the memories, the ruminations, the hopes and the fears, and they're all mental phenomena. And what gives them such power over us to just make us miserable, frustrated, we can't even, you know, so restless, we can hardly, hardly even stand being in our own minds. It's not the thoughts. It's the close grasping onto them. 
So settling the mind is exact antidote for that. To become lucid with respect to the mind in the waking state is to become less and less vulnerable to your own mind and to be able to be present with it without being tortured by it. And the parallel then is directly over into dreaming. The more we are actually lucid in the dream, recognizing the dream as the dream, and therefore not closely holding on to it, on our own bodies in the dream, our own little minds in the dream, not latching onto and reifying others in the dream, but simply recognizing the dream as the dream. And insofar as we do that, we don't suffer in the dreams either. In fact, you experience euphoria just by knowing the dream as the dream. And there's nothing in the dream that can make you suffer. And it's perfectly obvious, but it would be like watching television and say, how can anything on the television make me suffer? It's just images. What are they going to do? Reach out and hit me with a hammer from the television set? You know, not possible. And so you just see that for yourself. You see these are just appearances, just appearances arising in the space and freedom from suffering. So there it is with respect to the mind in the waking state, with respect to the mind in the dream state, that non-grasping and recognizing them as they are, as they're occurring, is freedom. And then imagining, and this is where I'd like to invite you to go in, the, in this session, imagine what it might be like to be lucid in the waking state. When the Buddha, when the Buddha was asked, are you a god, are you a celestial being, are you an earth spirit, are you a man? And he always said, no, 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 and no. Not even, am I a man? No. And then he said, what? I am awake. I am awake. He was in the waking state, what some of you have been in the, in the dream state. Lucid. And the freedom you had when you, when you had that experience, the freedom you had there, he had here. Right? So just to imagine that. What would it be like to be in the waking state and to not grasp onto and reify anything? And this is really the root delusion. The assertion is utterly astonishing. It boggles the imagination that nothing out here in the, in the environment around us, no person around us, no, no body, nothing here exists from its own side, objectively by its own self-nature. It's an astonishing hypothesis. And it's like a dream. Well, the sequence, and here's our sequence practically. So many people study Madhyamaka, and I think it, the, the arrow never strikes the target. They study the books, they write commentaries on it, they write papers, they published in scholarly journals and get so erudite and so fancy and they can debate and they can beat everybody in debate and does it apply a single antidote to a single mental affliction? Maybe not. Maybe it does if they're really good and they practice. But otherwise it's just food. It's just food for the conceptual mind. So how can we take these profound teachings, this perfection of wisdom and actually have it be medicine and not just dessert. And there's a sequence. Settle the mind in its natural state. Learn experientially the emptiness of your own thoughts and images and so forth so that you, you really get it and they don't harm you anymore because you realize that they are empty. It's not some big fancy philosophical you know, dialectic or anything like that. It's just you get it experientially. You see, ah, I don't have to be tortured by my mind because the images, the events arising in the mind are empty and they are just appearances and they have no power over me. Yatrinambuji made this point really strongly to me years ago when I was in a very intense six-month retreat practicing settling the mind. Some of you heard this story. It's very short. But uh, every month or so, I would drive 20 minutes down to the nearest town to a very isolated telephone on the back of the public library. And I'd phone him. 
and ask my questions about practice. And his counsel there, knowing the practice I was doing, he said, Alan, as you settle the mind in its natural state, even if a thousand maras, a thousand devils or demons should arise in your mind to assault you all together, one thousand great marauders coming to beat you to a pulp, even if a thousand maras arise, they'll not be able to inflict any harm. And then he added, even if a thousand Buddhas appear, they will not grant you any blessing. They're just appearances. How can an appearance grant you blessing? It's just an appearance. And so you really see where, what is a source of blessing. It's not from appearances. There are blessings. I believe in blessings. But they're not coming from appearances. Right? So, there's a strategy for settle the mind in its natural state. Realize the emptiness of your own thoughts and mental events. Maintain that lucidity. Carry it over into the dream state so that we are just not habitually on a regular pattern every single night entering into delusion, which is a non-lucid dream. Start entering into lucidity and realizing the emptiness of dream events. And be free. Be free. Most dreams are miserable, anxious, frustrated, and so forth, statistically. Be free of that. There's a strategy. Not as difficult as realizing emptiness. And then with the settling the mind, with the dream yoga, then come to the waking state and finish the job. Finish the job. And realize the emptiness of all phenomena here and the possibility of total freedom. So what I'm suggesting here is that in this compassion practice we'll start with ourselves and this gives rise to renunciation. And then we extend it to others and that is compassion. They're really of the same continuum. They're not two different, radically different things. Okay? So let's practice. Even in our own bodies, we can self-inflict so much discomfort, stress, So let's begin the session with an act of compassion for ourselves. As we set the body at ease, relax, comfortable. In stillness and balancing the relaxation with a posture of vigilance. In this way, settle the body in its natural state. And then ever so importantly, settle the respiration in its natural rhythm as you deeply relax with each out-breath. Releasing tension in the body, releasing the breath, releasing thoughts, letting it all go.
and for a little while settle your mind with the qualities of ease, stillness, and clarity by attending to the sensations of the in and out flow of the breath, calming the obsessive and compulsive mind. Relax right into the sweet spot, that point at the very end of the exhalation, just before the next inhalation begins. Relax through that and allow the next breath to flow in effortlessly. I would confidently speculate that all of you came, many from a great distance, to participate in this retreat because you wish to suffer less, find greater happiness. Arouse this yearning now for yourself to be free of suffering and consider, first of all, the first dimension latent suffering, especially of the mind. And consider how often in your life the suffering you have experienced has been brought upon yourself by your own deeds. 
Not always, of course. But those occasions when this was true, the mind becomes dominated by mental affliction, it manifests in speech, in physical behavior, and suffering follows, like the wheel of a cart follows the, the hoof of the ox. experiences are preceded by the mind, are based on the mind, consist of the mind. When we act and the mind is afflicted by mental affliction, suffering follows. Like the cart wheel follows the, the hoof of the ox. Arouse the yearning that you may be free free of this self-inflicted suffering. With each in-breath arouse this yearning, may I be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. With each in-breath, imagine you, how you may conduct yourself, lead your lives in the world with other people, the environment, in such a way that so much suffering is cut at the root, no longer self-inflicted, living at peace with the world, because your conduct is peaceful, non-injurious, Envision such freedom for yourself. Expand the scope of your awareness out over the world. And tend to those myriad cases wherever your attention brings you. To those cases where we human beings undergo such suffering, whether in the household, between man and woman, between parent and child, in a community, nationally, internationally, how much suffering we bring upon ourselves.
through our own conduct. Often we justify it as we sow the causes of our own suffering and bring suffering to others and find a way to justify it at every turn and yet still we suffer. Embrace the world with your heart and arouse a yearning. May we all be free. Free of suffering and free of the conduct by which we inflict suffering upon each other, as if we didn't have enough already by the forces of nature and by aging, sickness and death, as if there weren't enough. Let that be enough. May we cease. Arouse the, com- the heart of compassion for us all. Imagine us living in harmony, not simply as a vacant wish, an empty aspiration, but living in harmony by recognizing how through our conduct we bring suffering upon ourselves and ceasing such conduct. Consider once again your own life, drawing on your own memories, and ask of yourself, if you will, is it not the case that the more our own minds are out of balance, whether the simple attentional imbalances of laxity and excitation, or all the other mental imbalances driven by the afflictions of craving, hostility, and the other afflictions and distortions of the mind, the more imbalanced our minds are, the greater the internal distress, the more we look outwards for a balm, for something to soothe, for entertainment, for 
happiness outside because there is so little inside. And as we crave outwardly, attachment extends outwardly, we set ourselves up for anxiety, for frustration, for sadness and anger. And the cycle goes on forever. Attend to this suffering of change and the underlying causes, driven by craving and attachment, driven by inner dissatisfaction, mental imbalance. And if you see clearly the nature of this suffering and its underlying causes, then arouse the yearning from the depths of your heart. May I be free. Free of these true causes of suffering, no longer blaming others in the outer world. May I realize sublime inner balance, tap into the inner wellsprings of genuine happiness. So for that craving and attachment for things in the world, evaporate. Imagine becoming free. If we don't even imagine it, how would we ever realize it? Imagine your own mind sublimely balanced, experiencing a flow of well-being that draws from the depths of your own awareness without avarice or disappointment towards the world. Expand the field of your awareness out over the world and reflect with the eyes of wisdom how much suffering there is in the world that we bring upon ourselves from within, suffering within our own minds that leads to more suffering in our relationship with the world. The suffering of mental imbalances simply of laxity and excitation, that's enough, let alone all the other mental afflictions. And how among the rich and the poor, the privileged and the underprivileged, 
the famous and those who are not famous. That such suffering is everywhere. No one is immune simply by being fortunate in the world. seek freedom from suffering. Embrace the world with your heart and arouse a yearning. May we all be free of these inner imbalances of the mind and the craving that drives so many of them. Imagine that the cultivation of the heart and the mind, such mental balance, imagine this being taught everywhere, in children's schools, secondary schools, throughout society. And imagine the freedom of such inner serenity, inner well-being. through overcoming these inner causes of torment and distress. And finally, let's go to the root cause of suffering, which is grasping, which is reification. Grasping onto our own bodies, identifying with our own bodies, being in the grip of our own bodies once we grasp onto them. Might it be possible to be embodied and yet not the victim of the body? by perceiving the emptiness of the body. But let us begin with the mind. This I think you can envision. Knowing how much your mind has already tormented you on so many occasions. And seeing now, perhaps with greater clarity, that it's not just the mind, it is the grasping onto the identification with these phenomena arising in the space of the mind.
imagine being free of such self-inflicted suffering. That these mental phenomena simply arise in the space of the mind, but by attending to them without distraction and without grasping, you become free. And they simply arise and pass with no owner in the space of the mind, and you have become lucid with respect to your own mind in the waking state. If you will arouse that yearning to be free of this self-inflicted suffering, not by the mind, but by grasping and identification, Imagine truly settling the mind in its natural state. And tell all of these comings and goings of the mind gradually dissolve. And you rest in the innate bliss, the luminosity, the serenity of your own substrate consciousness. Imagine bringing the same lucidity, the same quality of recognizing mental events as mental events, empty, mere appearances, Imagine bringing this insight to the dreams. And imagine the euphoria, the bliss, and the freedom from suffering, the freedom from possibility of suffering, by recognizing the dreams as dreams. and arouse the yearning, may I be free of that which obscures, stifles, suppresses such well-being and bliss. Imagine being free of suffering with respect to your own mind in the waking and the dreaming states. And arouse the yearning, if you will, to be equally lucid in the waking state with respect to the whole of reality realizing the dream-like nature of phenomena, that it is only our grasping onto events in the waking state, in the world around us, that makes us vulnerable to suffering altogether.
imagine being truly awake in the so-called waking state and arouse that yearning to be free. And now expand the space of your awareness out over the world. And attend to the reality of how much people suffer due to their own minds in the waking state, in the dream state. and arouse the yearning that each one, like ourselves, may be free of such self-inflicted and therefore needless suffering, not imposed upon us from outside, self-inflicted. May we stop. the yearning that we may all be free of suffering during the daytime and waking experience by seeing through the illusion of self-existence, this absolutely objective existence of phenomena, the absolutely subjective existence of ourselves as agents. By becoming lucid in the waking state, May we become free of suffering altogether as we come to know reality as it is and thereby become free.
imagine the world becoming free. And then release all imagining and for a moment let your awareness come to rest in stillness in its own nature. Let's bring the session to a close. So, it really is odd that everybody wants to be free of suffering. Few of those who want to be free of suffering are technically insane. I mean, it's a small percentage of people who are really, really, you know, psychotic. Small percentage, they tend to be in institutions. So most of us don't have that as an excuse. So there it is. I mean, really, all of us wanting to be free of suffering. Very few are completely psychotic and really have no idea and the rest of us think we're sane, and yet the suffering just goes on and on and on and on. So it really appears like, well, we all wish to be free of suffering, and there are whole agencies, and there are many, many people with altruistic motivation, genuine, authentic, really wanting to help and alleviate the suffering in the world. Judge for yourself, but from my perspective, it seems like the vast majority, way beyond 99% of the efforts to alleviate suffering are all looking at the symptoms hardly anybody actually getting the underlying causes in terms of funding, funding, government funding, funding from, what, how do you say, non-governmental organizations. Almost all the funding goes to the symptoms. And then it just keeps on going and going and going because the symptoms keep on recopying because you're just, you're just mowing the lawn. You're just mowing the law of suffering. You never get to the roots. You never 
it just keep on mowing the lawn forever. So it's really very odd. I mean, it's not that hard, is it? It's not, it didn't need to be an Einstein to figure this out. This is pretty transparent, isn't it? Not that difficult. And yet we don't do it. We find so many other priorities. And it's not a uniquely Buddhist truth. I mean, St. Thomas Aquinas, this great genius from the Christian tradition, he commented, I think it must have been toward the end of his life, that the whole point of the political life, the political life means all mundane activities of business, politics, education, medicine, the whole point of the political life, why do we spend so much time trying to you know, set things up and make things go well? He said the whole point of the political life is the contemplative life. The whole point is a contemplative life. And that's not just yogis going to caves. Contemplative life is cultivating the inner causes of happiness. So, it's the, the, the insight, the wisdom, the knowledge is there in plain sight in Christianity and Buddhism, Hinduism and Judaism, Taoism and Islam. It is there. And yet, so strange. So strange. So I imagine a lot of us here, probably all of us here, have aspiration to be of service. How shall we do it? How can we be grave of service? Atisha said, well, if you achieve shamatha, develop the abilities out of shamatha, you can do more good in one day than in one hundred lifetimes. Oh! If you go beyond that to prajnaparamita, actual insight, then, then, just, then there's, no, there's no comparison whatsoever. But we find so many other things to occupy the mind. So it's strange. This afternoon, what I'd like to do, time is so short, I've been blubbing, blubbing. Um, what I'd like to do now is really just have this whole session. It's 35 minutes, 40 if we go five after, and focus only on practice. And moreover, I'd like to have the mic out, so we really have more of this dialogue. A lot of theoretical issues, some, some, a couple of you wrote some very interesting theoretical points, but I'd like to put those on the table for a while and have this whole afternoon just for practice, okay? And I'll try to keep responses short, and I'd also like to invite more responses. So we have enough to fill us the whole time, just from Malcolm, but I don't think we can let you dominate the whole time, nor did you ask to. But he'll, he'll start us off with some questions here. And I'd like to get, I, I will give a brief response, and I actually mean that, and I'd like to in, invite response from other people who have done a lot of the practice. Here, the question is about vividness. Mindfulness of breath at the nose tip, to me, equates with enhanced sensitivity, um, perception of sensations that were not perceived previously, so you're seeing them, that you couldn't see them before, plus perceptions of sensations that were already perceived, but much more... Con much more contrast and depth and sharpness and so quite clearly here where we're focusing on the sensations of the breath at the nostrils we can really see vividness arising by perceiving sensations that you couldn't see before more clearly perceiving sensations now that, uh, that than you had previously but now relating this to settling the mind in its natural state how does vividness manifest with settling the mind in its natural state and for that matter awareness of awareness with settling the mind in its natural state, does it mean seeing, hearing, perceiving thoughts and so forth that have not been previously perceived? So, a few of you. I'd like to kind of invite Adelina, Anna, and Michelle, because you've had a lot of experience in this. I'm not the only person who's practiced. And I'm sure there are others as well, but I just know these three have done a lot of this practice. Um, is this how... How do you say, is this how vividness manifests in settling the mind in its natural state? That you perceive thoughts and so forth that were not previously perceived? Does it mean that, um, that 
visions, that is what you see mentally, are more colorful. So is it like somebody turned up the wattage? Mentally, you see images and so forth more clearly. Is that the case? More colorful? Are mental sounds richer? More texture? More better audio, uh, audio, uh, audio system in your mind? Or all of this plus more? So let's, let's pause right there. I'm going to give an incomplete answer because I would like to evoke more completeness from you all, okay? And have the roving mic. So I would say for starters, uh, definitely yes. Unequivocally yes. When you're settling the mind in its natural state, are you able then, as vividness increases, are you able to mentally perceive events that you could not previously perceive? No question about it. That one I say with total confidence. Okay? And so what you are doing is you are drawing from, you're not re really pulling that up, but you're drawing from a domain of experience that was previously unconscious, just because it was working at a subtler level than your awareness was, and therefore it's unconscious. You're becoming more subtle, and therefore that which was unconscious becomes conscious. So, very clear. So that I would call qualitative vividness, where we are, are be able, being able to recognize subtle mental events, desires, subtle laxity, subtle imagery that may go on for seconds at a time that previously we just didn't even notice. Even if we are watching, and most of the time we're not watching anyway because we're looking outside to the sense fields. So that's one, yes. That I've called qualitative vividness. And that gets extremely subtle. And that's one indicator. This is a nice, honest litmus test. How is your vividness doing? Watch to see how subtle mental events can you discern while practicing settling the mind. And then you see, right? Then the other one is temporal vividness, you might recall this, where you're able to discern briefer and briefer events, a little spark, a little fleeting, that fleeting event, a pulse of something, an image, a little something, and it's just gone in a, in a flash, a fraction of a second. But you are there, you're so, boom, right in the present moment that it does not pass by unnoticed. So those two things, okay? That's an incomplete response. Uh, I invite specifically Anna, Adelina, and Michelle, if you have anything to offer, because I know you have a lot of experience here. Anybody else as well, I do not mean to be so preferential. Anybody else that has insight in this regard? How have you recognized enhanced vividness in settling the mind? Anyone? Anna first, thank you. And I, I have been trying to do, please articulate very clearly so we can all understand. Okay. Thank you. Um, we can separate vividness from relaxation and stability first. Did everybody understand? You can understand, yes? Stacy, can you understand? We, can't, we cannot separate vividness from stability and relaxation. That's a good start. Off we go. So the process um, starts maybe, well, with relaxation and you will be seeing a lot of, of mental events. So, without, without much clarity or vividness. Without? Much, much clarity or vividness. With, without much clarity or vividness, yes. Uh -huh. But then, you start uh, having more stability first. Mm -hmm. So, when you start having a stability, the mental events decreases. The, the more, how do you say, more common mental events or more... Uh, the thoughts or something like that. But when you start with the stability and relaxation, just decreases this kind of, of thoughts and you start seeing the more subtle mental events. 
So that is vividness also. I mean, vividness uh, comes um, together with relaxation and, and stability. Mm -hmm. And also you will start to see the stillness of the space of the mind. The stillness of the space of the mind. So this too is an expression of vividness. It's easier to discern motion than it is stillness. And so to be able to discern stillness itself, as you say, is an expression of enhanced clarity. Of clarity. And that's it. That's the process. You will, will have in more and more and more and more stability, more and more and more vividness. You will be more present in the space of the mind and less events. And less? Less events. Less thoughts, less, less feelings, less emotions. Uh -huh. Just the whole so thing becomes calmer. Uh -huh. Excellent. Thank you. Helpful. Michelle. And you also do not sh be shy about, because um, I think, I know you have some such experience, uh, what are the ramifications in between sessions? In between sessions, any difference in vividness then? Yes. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> no, please, I'm all ears. Well, I don't want to repeat what's already been said, but I will say that the experience is, a vividness is like being inside a light bulb. So there is a level of intensity um, that is it, it just the raw experience of um, energy, I, mm -hmm. I would Describe. I think that's the best way to describe it. And why doesn't energy rattle you, or does it? No. Why doesn't it make you it doesn't, oh, like that? that? Exactly. But Anna was saying that it's the stability and the relaxation that you can be there um, in that intensity, but in, in a very expansive way. Mm -hmm. So it's yeah. um, it's sustainable. It's not. Mm -hmm. It's not fleeting. It can be very sustainable. So that's the experience of it. And then the other thing that I would add is that the experience of, uh, I think, Alan, you call them embryonic thoughts. Yes, so, embry embryonic thoughts so it's, that haven't quite fully e explicitly manifested yet. Exactly. So there's a, it, and perhaps that's temporal, that you're able to catch Mm -hmm. and, and exactly. experience it almost before it happens. So there's a real, everything seems to slow down mm -hmm. and you can mm. just observe it uh, right, right at the very beginning. I want to interrupt because it's great. I just mm -hmm. want to interrupt there just to insert a little commentary, a mm -hmm. footnote to her. Everything slows down and why is that? You're getting more frames per second. And so it's like a slow, a slow motion movie, if you're getting more slams, and, and the fra frames are being shown at the same speed, but you're getting more frames per second, a slowing down quality. And so that then you don't feel you're hyper by identifying very brief events. They seem to be occurring more leisurely, more frames per second, higher temporal, higher temporal vividness, higher frequency. Right. Yeah, carry on. Which leads into why in between sessions it carries through, that there, the sense of vividness uh, occurs when you're interacting and you, or you're, you're not interacting, but you are able to catch your, your emotions, for example, earlier on. So there's a sense of vividness in the temporal experience that, okay, I can, I can catch it sooner before you get into the grip of, of an emotion or an experience. So 
so it it's, again slows everything down, uh, or the perception of slowing everything down, so that um, choices can be made, and uh, and then just the sheer vividness of the experience, and whether it is colors and the, the visual perception or any sort, and of the the five senses they tend to be much more vivid too. Mm -hmm. the... Ma Malcolm had a follow-up question, and I'd like if you would address this one also. Um, that what is it when one is practicing awareness of awareness? Um, the relaxation is relaxation, that's pretty easy. Stability is stability, that's easy, you're either wandering or you're not. But how when you're practicing awareness of awareness can you discern whether there's increasing vividness? What, what does that feel like? What are these symptoms, the mm -hmm. indications? that vividness is really arising in awareness of awareness during session and between session. What would you say? Mm, it's such a hard one to express in words. Um, but again, it is the experience, and I come back to the word of energy, but that's not quite right, because it, it's, it, it is, it, it's the intensity of, of the experience. And in, for awareness of awareness, it's that expansiveness. So that just um, floating, yet grounded, um, in, in, in experience where you're, you're, yeah, you're, the words aren't coming. I'm feeling it, but the... Very much so, but not color. It's not color, my experience. Yes. It's again. Back, I always think of it like that light bulb. That you're 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 in that light bulb, um, but it's it's not necessarily a color for me. It's right. just that. Yeah, awareness has no color. Awareness exactly. has no color. Exactly. And I, I'm not. The words are not are not coming. I'm experiencing it though. That in in between sessions, again, it's it's. I think maintaining that expansiveness uh, and while simultaneously attending to the details. So even though an event arises, an interaction or an experience, uh, a thought uh, comes up in between sessions, the ma maintaining that overall experience of expansiveness so that you're not, you know, you have the small-mindedness, it's mm -hmm. big-mindedness, mm -hmm. and that's... Yeah. I don't know if I'm capturing no, it. No, I, th but I it's think it's good. And I th the very nature of this cognitive fusion, uh, experientially, in my limited experience, it's really like space collapsing. Mm. That is, when, when you're resting there in awareness of awareness, or in open presence for that matter, there's an openness, and then cognitive fusion, the grasping sets in, and it's as if there's just a collapse of the space itself into something much smaller, tighter, and <laughs> unpleasant. <laughs> Right? But it, it really, we, we speak of people being small-minded, small-minded, where something very small appears very large. Remember I gave the ridiculous thing of, oh, why is there no granola? You know, getting really upset about there being no granola. There's something almost infinitesimally insignificant. But one could imagine a person being so petty, so small-minded, that this just ruins the day, because they didn't have my kind of cereal. That has happened, so it wasn't completely absurd, right? But then granola fills the space of the mind, and more specifically, the absence of granola leaves this vacuum, this vacuum of joy, this vacuum of happiness, 
a desperate longing. <laughs> you know? Because granola's figure is so large. Well, why does granola figure so large? Because your mind is hardly any larger. Whereas if your awareness is large, then this it's only with that that one can actually experience and not crumple under the weight of compassion for the world. Yeah. So, in all cases in compassion, and I have felt this on many occasions, not that I know much about it, but a little bit of experience, is that the awareness has to be larger than the suffering one is attending to. Otherwise, the mind implodes into it and just one just can just be, just break down in sadness. And that is exactly the experience of, of uh, the expansiveness and uh, being able, in between sessions, certainly on the cushion, but in between sessions, being able to detect when the mind starts to get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then to you know, step back and keep that expansive mind, and in that way, all the events are just, they just arise, and then they dissolve, and it's, it's easier to do that. And mm -hmm. so the experience of everything is, is just that much uh, richer, and... Yeah. Um, very good. I'll leave it at that. Very good. Adelina, much has said, been offered by Anna and by Michelle. Do you, uh, do you have anything to add, or is that enough for now? What do you think? Okay, something to add. Good. Because I know you've done a lot of this practice as well. Yes, about this space getting smaller, I recognize that very much out of the largeness or the fastness when when an emotion comes up and when, or indignation or mm -hmm. something, that it, that it, um, yeah, that sort of membrane contracts, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gets, it gets flat, yeah. col uh, colorless, thick, and contracts it in, mm -hmm. in the, yeah, in the body, in mm -hmm. mind. A strong image. Yeah, it's, a strong, it's a strong image. And the words that come up with the, the fastness, it's indeed the radically simplified mind, mm -hmm. sort of clear, clearness, clearness, cleanness. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, the, the word light was named. Sure. I experienced it also in the detail in the settling the mind practice. Um, when I've, when there has been some grasping, and when I'm back in this presence, uh, the the whole world or the space or the wall gets lighter. And indeed, it's not not uh, mm -hmm. the physical sure. light in general, but mm -hmm. it's it's also light. It's lighter in me. I'm lighter. Mm -hmm. Um, and it gives a joy, this, this micro light, micro joy. Mm -hmm. And every moment of um, resuming, of coming back. Mm -hmm. And I'm also um, very aware of this synergy of, like Anna named, the mm -hmm. relaxation, stability right. and vividness that that there is a sort of a slow movement into this refining uh, in what, what can 
be seen when there is um, yeah when there has been some sort of mist and clarity the the instrument is refining the the seeing is refining and the the objects that are seen are mm -hmm. more minute more small very good all right, Michael, Malcolm has more good questions, but what I'd like to do now is something we've not done for days, and that is, any questions you folks have now about practice? There are many other questions, but how is the practice going? We'll start with Teresa. Yes, right behind you. It's good here? Question, yes. No, 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 the, the sound. Is it, is it okay? It's working, yes, it's yeah? good. Okay, it's happening to me very often that uh, when I practice in breath awareness in supine position, uh, mindfulness breath, breath, in breath yeah. awareness in the supine position, that I'm needing to breathe very deep, uh -huh. and it's very often. Is it a problem or what's happening? Right. Did everybody get the question? Was it clear? Yes. Okay. Good. Yes. Um, it's not a problem. Breathing deeply, unless one is hyperventilating, is not a problem at all. What's most important here is that you're trusting your own body-mind. And that is, I'm not speaking of something weird or, you know, occult or, you know, airy-fairy here. It's just that your body knows how to breathe very well. And it's demonstrated that for years. The fact that you wake up refreshed every morning, or most mornings, when you've had a good night's sleep, you wake up refreshed. The body was doing something very good while you were out of the picture. And one of the things it was doing very well was breathing, right? And so the simple point here is there in the supine position, arms out to the side, everything open, then you have the confidence, every grounds for confidence that you're in no way constricting the breath, right? And if you're deeply relaxing into it, then you should have the confidence that you're not pumping the breath, you're not pushing, you're not striving, you're not trying to manipulate or regulate. You're deeply relaxed, hence the shavasana, the corpse position. So when you know that you're not constricting the breath, you know that you're not forcing the breath, then there's something else you can be confident of. Your body is breathing on its own. That is, you're not interfering with it. And if on occasion the breathing comes quite deep, and maybe quite deep for quite a long time, trust it. So I'm asking you to, not to trust me, trust your own self. So I've noticed this a lot in, this would be a short commentary, and not just a response. But there are really two large avenues of faith, of confidence. And one is outwards. And, and I'm saying both of these can be very well placed. So I'm not saying one is good, one is bad, not going there. But one is outwards. One meets a spectacular lama. One reads a marvelous dharma book. One receives some wonderful teaching. Whatever. Like that. And something out there inspires us, right? Maybe we receive a lot of dharma teaching and that inspires us, oh, Shantideva is great, I have so much faith, I've read Shantideva's Guide to the Bodhisattva Way of Life, I've read this, I received these, ah, they were wonderful, I now have so much more confidence, so much more inspiration, so much more faith, why? Oh, because of this Lama, this teaching, and such and such, outside, right? That externally oriented faith tends to be very strongly related to developmental approach. This person outside, this text, this tradition, gave me something to do, inspired me to do it, and it really works. 
and then we bow, then we're offering prostrations. Oh, the Lama is good, the book, the text is good, the Galupa tradition, Theravada tradition, whatever. Oh, I have faith, I have faith. It's good, as long as the faith is, you know, warranted. And then there's the faith of our own, one could say in Buddhist terminology, our own Buddha nature. The capacity of our own minds to heal themselves when we let them. The capacity of the body to heal itself when we let it, right? Gyatran made this comment at least once, and he's had so many years. He's been teaching in the West since 1972. A long time, almost 40 years. And Westerners, of course. And he made this comment to his students who'd been teaching, some of them for decades. And many of them frustrated, oh, I'm not progressing as much as I wish, oh, I'm not gaining such realization, oh, I'm not blah, 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 complain, complain. And he made this comment, he said, the grounds for your so-called lack of progress, why you've not developed more fully, why your mental afflictions have not gone down so much, and so forth. He said, it's not because you have insufficient faith in Dhamma. You don't have enough faith in yourselves. And he's speaking to Westerners. I don't know that that's said very often in the Tibetan tradition, Mongolian tradition, or you don't have faith in yourself. I think not so often. But here he's telling us Westerners, with all of our self-contempt, our judgment, our driving ourselves, our low self-esteem, setting goals, not achieving the goals, and oh, oh I'm, I'm, just, I'm, not, I'm, I'm just not good enough. And who, me achieve shamatha? Oh, forget it. That's got to be, you probably have to live under a rock for three years. You probably have to have that type of discipline to achieve shamatha. I can't live under a rock. I'd want two rocks. <laughs> and indoor plumbing. <laughs> So there's the faith inwardly. And I've been a number of teachers. I think very strong faith. Buddhist teachers. Asian Buddhist teachers. I have no question about the depth and the sincerity of their faith in Dharma. In Tsongkhapa, in Sakyapandita, in Marpa, Milarepa, the great, great teachers of the Tibetan tradition. Let alone Nagarjuna, Shantideva, Asanga, and the Buddha himself. I have no question. Tremendous faith. But then when it comes to practice, they don't even try to achieve shamatha. Don't even dream about it. They hardly even try vipassana. Don't dream about it. They don't really practice stage regeneration. They should do the sadhana for a while, do some one-month retreat, some two-month retreat. They don't think about achieving stage regeneration. You know, why? Because they don't have faith in the teachings? No, they have tons of faith in the teachings. They don't have faith in themselves. And then they don't have faith in their students because they think, why are you better than me? And I don't have faith in me, so why should, why should you have faith in you? And so, there it is. And so that also, dharma grinds to a halt. So the inwardly directed faith is really more oriented to, do you really think you have a Buddha nature? Do you really think if you practice shamatha and you brought together the outer circumstances, the inner circumstances, and you practice correctly, why don't you think you would achieve shamatha? Why not? Do you think you have to, have, you have to be born 500 years ago? You have to be born in Tibet? You have to be born in the Himalayas? What do you think is missing? When the great texts themselves, those who achieved it, said you need the outer circumstances, you need the inner circumstances, you need to practice correctly, then you achieve shamatha. Why don't you believe them? Because you don't believe in yourself. So, believe in your own body. And when it breathes deeply, you say, thank you. And when it stops breathing deeply, then you say, thank you. And just let the body breathe. That was a long answer. I said I'd give short answers, but you know how good I am at that. Further questions, comments? Yes. Ricardo. So, um, 
Um, like two days into the, the, the retreat, um, I started having some sensations in my forehead, mm -hmm. which um, eventually they moved, they kind of morphed. And I, I just missed the first part, in the retreat or in this one session? In this retreat, no, no, no. Two days after the retreat started. Two days after we okay. Some, yeah. pre some sensation in like, the head. Yeah, like a pressure, and like then it pressure. kind of, yeah, like in um, several sessions after it would start moving, like changing, and, and um, it's always been there. Yeah. In every session, mm -hmm. especially when when I focus very well, when I focus my attention and my and, and where are you focusing your attention? Are you doing mindfulness of breathing? Where was, are you focusing? Well, first I was doing um, mindfulness of breathing in my nostrils. Yeah, and, and then, then when when we changed, when you asked when you told me to change to my abdomen, uh -huh. it kind of um, well my attention got better, so I couldn't really see. I wouldn't pay attention to what was going on, so I didn't really. I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. Unless I had to come out. Yeah, you were, you were attending to the abdomen, so you weren't really aware of the sensations up in the exactly. forehead. Exactly, I wasn't being aware gotcha. of that. Yeah. Um, but I do know that every time I'm focused, and even when, when you're giving an explanation, and I'm focusing on what you're saying, then the sensation comes back. Uh -huh. So um, I was just wondering, and it's always there. Mm -hmm. You know, t two days after the retreat started until mm -hmm. today. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering if that is a yam. Um, and if it persists for two, two and a half weeks, it's not a yam, it's a habit. Okay. Right? And so, tell me just a bit about more about the sensation. Is it painful or just kind of a mild pressure? Just a mild pressure. Yeah. On the whole, we don't want any pressure, it would be preferable, not for no, for no pressure to build up in the head. Okay? I'm, I'm glad it's not painful, because then we'd really, then you and I'd have to go out and talk, you know, <laughs> get rid of this, because I don't, I don't want anybody to be harmed by the meditation. That's extremely important to me. So the fact that it's merely a pressure and not really unpleasant, it's good. But overall, if any type of pressure starts to build up in the head, not such a good sign. Because then, if that starts getting out of hand, then you start having pressure headaches, and then you have migraine headaches, and then, you know, big problem. So, I think you know the answer, though. And it is relaxation. It's a lighter touch. It's a lighter touch. We, we people living in the modern world, we are heavy-handed. It's just, it goes with the terrain. It's how we do things in the modern world. We're heavy-handed. And so when we do something, we do it with, a, you know, a lot of us, we do it with intensity, we do it with goal-oriented, we do it with a lot of desire, a lot of ambition, and so forth and so on. And that brings a heaviness, right? And so to counteract this, we need to have the remedial for being a modern person. And that is just the lightness, the soft touch, the soft touch. Again, I've often mentioned when you settle your body in its natural state, that your face is settled so relaxed, so soft, it's like the, the face of a sleeping baby, right? Just totally soft. And so if you can just sp spend more time in the early phases, they look elementary, but they're about as elementary as the foundation for a house. It's elementary, but if the foundation's no good, the house won't be that good. And so the foundation here is really spending time settling the body in its natural state. Taking time, knowing it's time well spent, to really go into deep relaxation in the body, in the shoulders, the face, the area around the eyes. This area right here around the eyes, and especially between the eyes, the forehead, the eyebrow area, this is the big magnet for tension. Uh, I won't mention any names, but there are politicians present and past. You look at their face when they're on television, and the forehead is always squinched. 
You know, it's, it just, it never loosens up. And I don't want to say any names. If you figured it out, that's your, that's your business. But it's just always scrunched, like forehead, the, forebra- you know, for, the eyebrows brought together, the head, the forehead always wrinkled, always scrunched between the eyes. Oh, like, what's wrong? You know, it never stops, you know. And what I want, I, I want to just go out and just give, give this person a big massage, like, Open up the forehead, you know, just big massage, boom, like that. <laughs> relax, dude, <laughs> you know, it's, it'll be okay. In fact, we'll all be better if you can relax more. So I got, and I didn't mention the name, isn't that interesting? And everybody knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> so there was an extreme case of, and what is an expression of? Maybe lack of, in, in some cases because I'm not a psychoanalyst, lack of self-confidence, anxiety, low self-esteem, more anxiety, more fear, more drive and ambition, but fear of frustration, fear of failure, all of that's going to contract right around the eyes. So in some cases it's very extreme, right? But I think we're generally prone to that. So the more that we can just, just release it and release it and just be in the present moment, in the present moment, no goals, right? Just doing the practice. So see if they can just all lighten up, loosen up. Strong emphasis on relaxation, okay? Get back to me later and we can talk about it, okay? Next time I see you. Good. Good, we have a few more minutes. Any other questions or comments? They can also be insights. We'll start with Sanjay, and if there's still time, we'll go to Noah. Um, this is a question on the settling the mind. Yes. Um, which is a new practice to me. So when, when visuals come past, I'm not caught up with them. And of course, I, when I'm discursive thoughts carry me away, I recognize that. But I have some difficulty in sorting out the difference when a thought comes up. Is, and I'm aware of it, mm-hmm. but I'm still thinking it. <laughs> Of course, we can do that. that that's, that's one way of catalyzing the whole, the whole practice of settling the mind. This is the mind. Remember that preliminary yes. exercise? Very deliberately, ponderously generating the thought image by the image, and I'm doing it, but you can still observe it. Yeah, so that's certainly true. What that means is, go back to the core, the, the core formula. Sustain your mindfulness without distraction and without grasping. What you're doing there is you're sustaining your mindfulness without distraction, and with grasping. So when I become aware that, the, that I've attached to the thought, I can still go, oh, and it sort of continues. Uh-huh. That's fine. Oh. Yeah. That's the big difference between our response to thoughts, if we're practicing mindfulness of breathing or awareness of awareness, those two practices, as soon as the thought comes up, what do we do? We let it go. That's right. If you're practicing settling the mind in its natural state and you recognize a thought, what do you do? You let it be. Thank you. 100%. (laughs) A plus. Thank you. On this little midterm exam. That's exactly it. You let it be. And you let it be without preference. And this is hard. That is hard. Because you go, well, that's really neat. What's that? I say, well, that was a really neat thought. Or, well, that was really interesting the way I carried on like that. So that, that commentary comes up with me yeah. too. Yeah. So, but what if it's a really a grotesque image? 
really nasty image. You say, oh, I don't want that. That doesn't belong to me. That's not, ugh, I, that shouldn't come up in my mind. You know, like some real bad neighbors moving into your neighborhood. Like that. He's like, well, you're not welcome here. You're, you're lowering, lowering the, the, the property value of my mind. <laughs> and so when, when really nasty images come up, and some of them can get, just can be simply grotesque. And what, you wonder, I, I haven't watched television recently. Where did that nasty thought or image come up? It's just coming up. It's coming up out of the substrate. We have all mental afflictions. We have all kinds of memories. A lot of them are ancient. So to not even show preference then, you know, and just a nasty image, but then just be present with it. And it will pass. And just, and just let it be, but release the grasping. Thank you. You're welcome. And I think we do have time for one more. No. Nope. Finished. Okay, one final one from Teresa, and then we'll call it an afternoon. While practicing settling the mind, yes. sometimes I'm aware, as Anna said, that relaxation is the foundation. So relaxation I, is? Is the foundation, the ground. I can't hear. The foundation, relaxation, yes. So right. it happens sometimes that I relax, relax, and then I sleep into a very still space, and there is nothing there. So I am aware that I am losing the phone. You're aware of that? I'm losing the fun of the, all the displays of the substrate. I'm missing so, a noun. I'm losing what? The, the fun. Oh, losing the fun? F-U-N? The movies. I, lose, I lost the movies. You're losing the movies. That's it? Yeah, somebody cut your, turned off your cable. <laughs> <laughs> no, carry on. You're, you're losing Was the movies. Clear? Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I... I'm aware that I need to activate the mind in order to see all the mental events because there is where I suppose I'm able to learn, no grasping, that's all. But then I say, what for? I'm, I was feeling better in that stillness. Yeah. The practice and it, we just have to keep on remembering it and remembering it and remembering it again in the practice of settling the mind. The practice is to sustain no preference. No preference. And so some people will naturally have a powerful urge or attraction to no thoughts. Give me stillness. Give me peace. Don't bother me with all those thoughts and images. Give me peace. That's a preference. And other times we may feel, oh, there's no more movie. Did I not pay my cable rent? What's wrong? Let's have a movie. Something. Even an infomercial would be okay. <laughs> you know? But the practice is, let it be. Because what you're doing here is you're... I look for a passive enough verb. Maybe allowing is okay, but I don't like it really. You're allowing your mind to unravel. You're letting your mind unravel. You're letting your mind settle. Settle, unravel, the thoughts gradually in their own way, in their, at their own pace, subside, dissolve, untangle, and dissolve into the substrate, right? And so I think the best metaphor that I know of is if you've got a very highly agitated snow globe where everything is just chaos inside, little, little flakes of snow all over the place, what's the most effective way to get them all to settle down? 
not do anything at all, right? And let the snow globe settle in its natural state. Not by preferring this, not by saying, oh, I think they're going to the left, maybe I should bump it to the right, and then they'll go, they'll go down straighter. Oh, now they're going, you know, oh, what shall I do? Ah, oh, maybe I should bump it this way. No, I'll bump it that way. And whatever you do, it's just more and the mind is not settling. So insofar as, and this is the final note, and we will take a break, insofar as you're intervening in the mind, sticking your finger in and doing anything, you're stopping the process and reversing the process. Because bear in mind, in the, in the best possible sense of the term, the settling the mind in its natural state is a process of losing your mind in the nicest possible way. The more you're activating the mind, reinforcing the mind, identifying with the mind, the mind will not settle in its natural state. Right? So in the best way, you're allowing your mind to be lost, to dissolve, to dissolve, thought by thought, image by image, memory by memory, dissolve until you settle in the ground from which your mind arose. And you'll find that that's a very nice place to come home to. Okay? Good. Good. Well, we will not keep our cooks waiting. So enjoy your evening. I'll see you tomorrow morning.